I'm excited to be here, I got to tell you. And for those of you who knew I was preaching and came anyway, may the Lord bless you. And for those of you that stayed home, shame on you. I was really excited to hear how Christian emphasized King Jesus this evening during worship because that's kind of where we're headed tonight. And last week, if you recall, Pastor Elizabeth was here, and she covered chapters 4 and 5 in the Old Testament book of Judges. And she shared with us how God called and used a woman by the name of Deborah to judge and then liberate God's people from oppression. And one of the primary points that Elizabeth emphasized was that Deborah excelled largely in her calling as a prophet and a judge because she maintained a heart that was fully devoted to the Lord. Now just pin that one up for right now. Because this week we're going to turn our attention to chapters 6 through 8 and the next installment of the cycle. And in this episode, God chose a man by the name of Gideon to liberate the same people, only a generation older, from severe brutality at the hands of their Midianite neighbors. Now, more is written about Gideon's legacy as a judge, 100 verses, than all the others. In fact, I did the math, and he edges out Samson by four verses. However, since 100 verses is far too much for us to cover in one week, we're not going to get through the whole thing. Therefore, I encourage you to invest the time to finish the reading on your own if you haven't done so already. After all, the reason these Old Testament accounts have been preserved in writing for us over thousands of years and the reason we study them is so that we can learn from those who have gone before us. It's often said that we learn from our own mistakes, but how many know that it's always better to learn from the mistakes of others whenever possible in order to avoid repeating them ourselves? And the scriptures offer us a perfect opportunity to do that. And Paul agreed when he said, these things happened as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. And so we, being among those who live at the end of the age, would be wise to pay close attention by seeking to not only understand, but also apply the lessons and the warnings available to us. Now let me put that another way. We, above all generations, will have no excuse for not bringing our lives into conformity with God's will and his word, something that the Israelites in the days of the judges really struggled to do. And we're not without excuse because we have something they did not have, and that's 24-7 private access to written copies of God's word and various translations. And along with that privilege comes increased responsibility and accountability. In other words, none of us will stand before Jesus on Judgment Day and be able to claim that we did not know. Any truth that was communicated to the Israelites was communicated via word of mouth from their ancestors and other godly leaders. And sadly, godly leaders were in short supply in those days. In fact, if we read in Judges chapter 2, after Joshua's generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. 
And here's a sobering thought. In spite of their lack of access to written copies of God's word and the lack of godly leaders to instruct them, they were still held accountable for their sin and rebellion against God. And we will too, and even more so, given our abundant access to the scriptures. The scriptures are a gift from God that contain the secrets to the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, I'll gladly repeat what Jesus often said when sharing these precious secrets. He who has ears, let him hear. And I've entitled today's message, I Pledge Allegiance. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible opportunity to share your word, and your word is life-giving. Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit, we call upon him now. Lord, that you would take my words and that you would fill them with your power, Lord, that they would fall on not only listening ears, but obedient hearts in this place today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word and that we have access to it whenever we want. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we think of Gideon, we tend to recall that he led a depleted force of only 300 men against an army that numbered over 100,000. Crazy, right? And how with God's promised intervention, the Midianites were destroyed, thereby liberating the people of Israel. And that was a good thing. However, the problem that remained and why the cycle was destined to continue for 400 years is that although they were liberated physically, they were never liberated spiritually, something God would have been eager to do had they pursued that option. In fact, God's purpose in calling for foreign invaders to begin with was for his people to repent and then seek to correct their broken spiritual condition, something they sadly refused to do. Israel's primary issue at that time was not physical or circumstantial, as they thought. It was spiritual. And cycle after cycle, they called upon the Lord to relieve their physical circumstances without a desire to ever address their own spiritual collapse. And there's a lesson in here for us. The need for spiritual well-being always overrides the need for physical well-being. Because that's the way God designed his kingdom. He always values the spiritual over the physical, and so should we. And that's why he commanded us to walk according to the spirit, not the flesh. And to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. You see, the Israelites thought their problems were external and therefore physical, when in fact they were internal and spiritual. Someone once coined the phrase, we have met the enemy and he is us. And that's certainly applied here. And if we're not discerning, we can easily fall into the same trap. We can waste a lot of time asking God to fix other people and relieve our physical circumstances and then question his goodness when he doesn't, when in fact the real enemy is a spiritual short circuit within us usually in the form of some kind of sin or rebellion that needs confronted and dealt with first. So, with this in mind, let's jump into our text beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites 
for seven years. The severe oppression the Israelites experienced at the hands of foreign invaders wasn't the result of happenstance. It was something God deliberately arranged for their own good. He phoned in the order, so to speak, and the Midianites were more than happy to oblige. And they were extremely cruel to the Israelites. In fact, we read, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And to be clear, the punishment from Yahweh didn't come without fair warning or advance notice. In fact, he told them precisely what would happen if they persisted in their disobedience. And we learned that back in Leviticus chapter 26. And as we look at this passage, please note the usage of if and then. If you break my covenant by rejecting my decrees, treating my regulations with contempt, and refusing to obey my commands, then you will plant your crops in vain because your enemies will eat them. Now, this should serve as notice that God always says what he means, and he means what he says. And there are lots of these if-then type statements and warnings woven throughout the scripture. If you do what I say, then things will go well. If you don't do what I say, then, eh, not so much. And perhaps the most famous if-then proposition took place in the garden. If you eat from that tree, then you will surely die. And God, ever the perfect parent, since he followed through on that warning in the garden, we can be pretty certain he's going to follow through on all the rest. In fact, he's on record as saying this, I have sworn by my own name, I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word. And, interestingly enough, these if-then statements were not just an Old Testament approach. Jesus used them. For example, if you forgive those who sin against you, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your sins. You see, the point is we must heed these warnings and not fall for the lie that they don't apply to us because we've been granted some sort of special exemption from obedience because we attend church. I don't see that in Scripture. Remember, the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day were convinced that his words did not apply to them, and they could not have been more wrong. And we can't afford to make the same mistake. So, in what way did the Israelites do evil in the Lord's sight? Well, after seven years of suffering at the hands of the Midianites, the people finally cried out to Yahweh for relief. But before the Lord provided any, he first sent them a prophet in an attempt to help them see that their greater problem was their spiritual condition, not the Midianites. 
verse 8. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to me. Now, on the surface, their problem appeared to be disobedience in the form of spiritual adultery and infidelity toward God. And that's not wrong. However, I believe their disobedience was symptomatic of a much deeper root issue. Because if you trace it back, the root of their disobedience was simply a lack of allegiance to Yahweh. That's what opened the door to their infidelity. Choosing to shack up with the foreign gods of their pagan neighbors was simply an offshoot of that root issue. In fact, they made it a way of life to violate the first commandment, which says this, you must not have any other god but me. And until they became willing to confront and deal with that root issue, they would remain spiritually broken and the cycle would continue. Now, lest we think the need for allegiance only applied to the Israelites, let me make it real for all of us today. Because Jesus requires allegiance from those who choose to follow him. The Greek word translated faith and belief in the New Testament, get this, can also be translated allegiance, which much better communicates what Jesus expects from his followers. After all, you can have faith in many things, but you can only have allegiance to one thing, in this case, Jesus. Allegiance includes faith, but I'm afraid many try to live with a faith that doesn't include allegiance. They seek the benefits Jesus provides without the surrender that he demands. And allegiance is required because he can't be legitimately followed with divided loyalties or half-hearted devotion. Pastor Elizabeth talked about this last week when she said, your devotion determines your destiny. And allegiance is 100% devotion. Jesus demands that we choose between him, the world, and ourselves. However, maintaining a grip on all three is not an option. Furthermore, there's no room on the narrow road to pursue our agenda and his agenda. There's only room for one agenda, and we get to choose. And that's why Jesus warned people to count the cost before following him, because he requires much more than most people are willing to pay. He said, if you hang on to your life, then you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, then you will save it. John Mark Comer, author of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, an excellent book, by the way, I highly recommend, he noted that recent surveys indicate that 76% of Americans identify as Christian. However, only 8% of that group actually admit to following Jesus. Isn't that the problem? Jesus said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter but will not be able to. 
Those who enter through the narrow door into God's kingdom are those who shift their allegiance from the kingdom of self and the kingdoms of this world to King Jesus, thereby relinquishing their rights to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. And those who resist shifting their allegiance by retaining their rights will be counted among pretenders and imposters on Judgment Day. Paul said of such people, they will act religious but reject the power that could make them holy. Allegiance to God was required in the days of the judges, and it remains so today. God has not reduced his standard. He declared this, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will declare what? Allegiance to God. Allegiance to King Jesus is not only required, but it's essential for our spiritual health and well-being because it promotes surrender and death to self, things which are needed to bring our lives into conformity with God's will and his word. I think Pastor Allen said it well in week one of this series when he contended that we have two choices. One, I will surrender. Two, I won't surrender. But I can't surrender isn't an option. Hear this, if we don't surrender everything to King Jesus, then in his eyes we've surrendered nothing because partial surrender retains the right to do whatever seems right in its own eyes. I think the biggest root problem in the church today, present company excluded, of course, is really no different than what ailed the Israelites in the days of the judges. It's just a lack of allegiance. Because although many profess the name of Jesus, they persist to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. But I'm here to tell you, God easily sees through that ruse. Psalm 44 says he knows the secrets of every heart. You can't hide anything from him. True liberty comes when you make the conscious decision to surrender everything to King Jesus, including your allegiance, because he rules a monarchy, not a democracy. And until you choose to do that, your spiritual life, which directly affects your physical life, by the way, will feel like you're just spinning in cycles, just like the Israelites did generation after generation. And you'll be continually focused on your physical circumstances rather than a king. Think of it this way. Allegiance to King Jesus gives all of us the permission to stop doing what seems right in our own eyes and begin doing what is right in his eyes. It really is the key to spiritual health and well-being. He who has ears, let him hear. Now back to our story and enter Gideon. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, a quick side note, as most scholars agree, that this was no angel that appeared before Gideon, but someone much, much greater. In fact, the identifier angel of the Lord in this case is a reference to a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ referred to as a theophany. And this isn't the first time Jesus has done this. Continuing with verse 13. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, 
Why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Now, Gideon's response is pretty remarkable because if he represents the attitude of the people, and let's just roll with that for now, then his evaluation of their circumstances couldn't have been more off base. I mean, he accepts no responsibility whatsoever for their current state of affairs. In fact, he blames God. He blames God for abandoning them when, in fact, it was them who abandoned God. And we know this because chapter 2 informs us the Israelites abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. And this serves as a warning that compromising with sin promotes spiritual blindness. You see, Gideon was not only blind to the truth of his own spiritual condition, but that of the entire nation of Israel, even though God sent them a prophet earlier to explain otherwise. But their persistence in idolatry blinded them to God's revelation and his truth. What Gideon believed to be right was actually wrong. Something Alan pointed out that would be a byproduct of anyone that does what seems right in their own eyes. And make no mistake, spiritual blindness is not only contagious, but it's a very dangerous place to be. Because it convinces you you're spiritually okay, when in fact, you're really not. Think of it this way. If you permit sin to linger in your life and grow then what you're really doing in effect is you're giving it permission to destroy you over time, just like cancer. James put it this way. He said, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to what? Death. He's speaking to the church, a New Testament church. Look, Allegiance to King Jesus requires that all sin be put to death, no matter how small it may seem. We can't afford to compromise with any of it, because sin cannot be managed or negotiated with. It must be taken to the cross and crucified. So, during the remainder of their encounter, the Lord told Gideon that he will send him to rescue Israel. However, before he could be sent, Gideon would have to destroy something first. Jumping down to verse 25. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using the fuel, using as fuel from the wood of the Asherah pull you cut down. Now, in spite of the persistent infidelity, God was still willing to liberate his people anyway, but not until Gideon destroyed the family idols. That had to be his first act of obedience and was symbolic of the rejection of Baal. 
a clear reminder that pledging allegiance to King Jesus requires that you abandon your idols. Just as there is no room on the narrow road for your own agenda, there's no room on the road for your idols either. That's why Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And this is where things can get difficult. Because when we pledge allegiance to King Jesus, then we must be willing to identify and abandon anything that interferes with or distracts from our devotion to him, even if they aren't inherently bad things. Activities, pursuits, and possessions that consume too much time, energy, and resources should be evaluated. And eliminating idols requires honesty and humility before the Lord and then most important, action. And know that God will never force you to abandon your idols. You must choose to do that on your own as a demonstration of your allegiance to him. Jesus said this, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. We're out of time almost. So as we close, let me make it clear. Jesus doesn't require your perfection. After all, he can't require something that we're incapable of providing. But he does require something we are capable of providing, and that's our loving allegiance. So in the few minutes we have left, I'm going to invite you just to, where you are, close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to consider five questions. Honestly, before the Lord, this is between you and him. And I'll present each question, and what I want you to do is then ask that question to the Lord on your own, and then I'm going to give you a few seconds to listen for a response. You ready for this? All right. Number one, have I truly shifted my allegiance to King Jesus, or am I holding something back? Number two, in what specific ways am I continuing to do what seems right in my own eyes rather than God's? Number three, are there ways I am compromising with sin?
number four. In what ways have I been blind to spiritual truth? Number five, Lord, what are the idols I need to abandon? If the Lord revealed something to you today, then my advice is do whatever he says without delay because you may not get another chance. The older I get and the more scripture I read, the more it becomes clear to me. There's nowhere in God's word that indicates whatsoever that he recognizes casual relationships or half-hearted devotion. It just doesn't. He wants you all. And you know what? He's entitled to you because he created you and then came here to redeem you. Right? The world just wants to offer distractions. And you know who's behind it. Right? The prince of the power of the air. He wants to destroy you. He's on record as saying that also. In, in the book of Revelation, don't have it. Allegiance to King Jesus. <laughs> That's all that matters in this life. Everything else you're going through even today isn't, isn't even going to be an issue 100 years from now. What will matter is that you give your allegiance to Jesus and then maintain it. We have to maintain the allegiance, right? In fact, I would recommend this. I started to do this myself when I prepared this. I wake up in the morning and I say, I pledge allegiance to King Jesus. And then as much as I think of it during the day, I repeat it again. Right? And then I ask him, Lord, help me. Help me do that. I, I, I want to give you all my allegiance. And then point out areas where maybe I'm not. Right? He, he wants to help you. Right? He's not trying to hide from you. So, anyway, if, if, if you need to spend more time before the Lord, go home and do that. Right? Certainly, you only had a couple of minutes here to do that. And if you need more help, know that we're here to help. Right? Visit our prayer room after the service if you just want to seal something with the Lord. Pastor Marvin and his team are there. Uh, or meet with a pastor. Call the church. Lord knows we have enough of us around here, right? <laughs> you'll, never, you'll never stand before the Lord one day and say, I couldn't find a pastor, Lord, because we're here. All right? Call our, our counseling department, right? We have, we have teams of people over there that will meet with you for weeks and weeks and weeks, whatever it takes to help you. Okay? So that's it. Um, I don't think I have anything else. Would you please stand for the benediction then? As you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace as you pledge and maintain your allegiance to King Jesus. Have a great night.